So we're going to talk about uh, David, and, and we'll get there in a minute. So it'll, it'll be 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 and Psalm 51, and all this is a particular time in David's life. But what, I want you to start thinking about something before we get there, and it is the mark of a believer. Now, now as we're talking, I'll go kind of back and forth between using the word believer and the word Christian, uh, but I, I mean the same thing. As I'm saying it. So I want you to consider what is the mark of a believer. And I'm going to pose it to you as a task. Okay, so here's your task. Uh, two people enter a room. Uh, one is a believer and one is not. Your task is to determine who's the believer. Now, uh, that's not a joke. It started out sounding like a joke, but it's not a joke. Your job is to look at two people and try and determine which one's a believer. Now, in talking through this with my family, uh, I, we came across a few ways you might choose to do this. One is you might choose to check out their actions. Uh, one, you might choose to check out their practices. You might choose to check out what they say, their declarations. Or, as one put it, you, you might just avoid the question altogether. You're being judgmental. This is wrong. <laughs> but for the purposes of the conversation, I want you to cast that one aside. And, and let's start exploring this and then see where David takes us in the middle of it. So if you choose to check out somebody's actions, uh, we would hope that that would be true, right? That you could look at a believer and their actions are more often good than bad and you would look at an unbeliever and their actions are more often bad than good and it would be a clear indicator to us that's who the believer is. But I'm, I can tell you, I know people that are not believers uh, that are kinder than I am. I, I hate to confess that to you, but it's true. And, and if you think about it, you might know people that are that way also. So, so the thing is, our actions, they, they tell us something, but they don't tell us anything about that person's soul. Paul saw this, and he talked about it in Romans 2. I'll give you a paraphrase for it. Uh, if those who are not believers keep the rules, won't they be regarded as though they are believers? And if those who have the rules break them, won't they be regarded as though they're unbelievers? Paul spoke of it in terms of circumcision and the Jew. I relate it to you in terms of faith. So it's, it's a hard thing to use the barometer of good and bad actions to decide what's going on inside somebody's soul. So try it the other way. Let's try just what their practices are. You could, uh, you could watch them and see who goes to church, who reads the Bible, who hangs out in community, uh, who does, who does uh, practices gifts, you know, as Randy talked to us last week, who does those things. But there's a problem with even that. I mean, Jesus told us about, through the Gospels, we learned from Jesus that there'll be people who are casting out demons in his name. Casting out demons in his name, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So I would interpret that as somebody using their gift, but Christ says that says nothing about their salvation or their soul. Or try the third one. You, you do it by their declarations, what they say. I was on a plane ride to the West Coast, sat beside a young, newly married couple. They were just happy as they could be to, to be there. And because of something I was reading, they, we started a conversation. 
and I asked them, are you, are you believers? Are you Christians? Well, yes. I said, well, uh, when did you become a believer? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. What are you talking about? I said, well, w when I became a believer, it was a moment of confession. I said, hey, I, I know that inside me is something wrong, and I need God to fix it. They said, oh, that's not how it works for us. Uh, for us, our parents were both Christians. So when we were born, we were born Christian. So, so that's what we are. So now you're beginning to see what I wanted you to see is that it's, it can be very difficult uh, to look at somebody and try and ascertain what the Christian faith is. So if two people walk in a room and we're trying to figure it out, it can be, it can be very difficult for us to figure it out. So I want you to think about this. Instead of it being uh, somebody else, think about it as being you. How does somebody determine that you are a believer? They look at you. Are they doing it based on your actions, based on your words, based on your practices? Are you begging them, please don't judge me? <laughs> so here, here's a model. I like, I like to think in terms of pictures. Uh, my life group makes fun of me. Uh, but I like to think in terms of pictures, graphs and arrows and which directions things go. So if you just think of a person, a person does things, it starts with their heart. We start with what we value, what, what's inside of us, what do I find important? And then the value system comes up and it enters into our mind and we make decisions. What am I going to do based on what I value? And then those decisions result in actions that go out other people can see, okay? So heart, mind, actions. And then those actions are what we tend to judge. I mean, just be honest, right? Me, me and you talking, this is how I judge people. In, in all honesty, I see what they do, and I start thinking to myself, that's a good guy or that's a bad guy. And so we all do this, but it's not really a good metric to determine who a believer is. And that's what I want us to dig into. What is a good, what is a good metric? What's a good way? What is the mark of a believer? So we're going to look at David and something that goes on in his life. And we're going to talk about it because I believe between Nathan, David, and God, there are certain, several principles that are revealed uh, that, that we need to own. Before I get there, I just want to put your, your mind into it. This is where David lands. Psalm 51, I, I'll read verses uh, 10, 10 through 15 for you, and then we'll start talking about David and Bathsheba. Create in me a pure heart, O God, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So we're going to talk about how David landed there. And we'll start in the 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Now I'm just going to give you big picture. You, you don't have to jump there unless you want to read it. But uh, David was a man after God's own heart, according to the scriptures. 
David uh, slayed bears with his own hands to protect sheep, right? David was the one that uh, killed the giant with a sling and a stone. David is anointed by God to be king. He's given the Holy Spirit as a deposit on him. Uh, and he's given a musician's heart, a poet's heart, so much so that he ends up being the musician for the king, King Saul. But in the presence of King Saul, the anointing of David was too much, and King Saul sought to kill him. You remember this? He chased him throughout the kingdom, and David lived on the run but protected by God. This is what David knows. Eventually, David becomes king by God's declaration, uh, and he experiences victory after victory after victory. All this is because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on David, and David knows it. But much like you and I, we came at one point to salvation. If you came to that point at salvation, over time you draw away from it. David draws away from it too. The weaknesses within his heart eventually become revealed. I don't know for what reason. Maybe it became hard to be a king in the kingdom. Maybe it was just overbearing to have to take care of all the decisions that had to be made regardless. What ended up happening was one, one time David decided to send everybody else off to war and not go with them. And from, from that time, he stood on a tower. He looked out over his land, and he witnessed a beauty. And he said, you know what? I want her. And so he desired her in his heart. He conceived of a plan to have her, and he executed it. David became an adulterer. The man after God's own heart. That wasn't bad enough. Bathsheba had, had a child. She became pregnant, and now David needs a way to cover it up. So David goes through and executes a plan to cover up his sin. In the end, that plan was to murder Uriah. So now David, a man after God's own heart, the one that would wave the flag to tell everybody, hey, I am, I am a believer in Jehovah, that David is an adulterer and a murderer. So what we want to get at is what happens afterwards. What happens after that sin? And this is where Psalm 51 comes from. So a couple of principles to grab just, just as we get there. The first one comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Your actions have consequences. You know that. We, we all know that. But the Christian faith gets a, gets a bad rap. I feel like I keep hitting something. The faith gets a bad rap, and that rap is that we have a get-out-of-jail-free card. You've heard people accuse Christianity of, of that call, that all you have to do is go confess your sin to God, and God absolves you of it. There's no other charge. So you, Christians can go anywhere they want to and do whatever they want to and just say, hey, it, it's covered under his grace. But you can look at David's life, and you know that this is not true. So this is a perfect example for you to just dig into Scripture and say, well, look, here's, here's David. What does Jesus say about David? Well, he says, David, your kid is going to die. This is the consequence of your sin. So don't tell me sin doesn't have consequences, that you can just be absolved by confession. This, the child will die. Number two, David will live in a household of strife. What are you talking about? David's the king. There can't be strife there. Oh, there will be strife. His own kids will pursue him and try to kill him so that they can become king. He says, David, your household will be a household of the sword. He, he will never have easiness again. And all of those consequences can be traced back to this moment when David chose to be an adulterer 
and David chose to be a murderer. Now, we understand actions and consequences, right? If, if you commit murder, there's going to be consequences for it. If you commit adultery, there are going to be consequences for it. We see it play out in life around us all the time. Consequences of adultery or guilt, broken relationships, broken friendships, damaged children. So we learn to avoid these things because of that. But Jesus takes it one step higher uh, when he's talking to us in the Gospels. So it's not just that your actions have consequences. Your actions speak about your heart. A good man brings good out of the goodness stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So actions have consequences. True, we know that. But your actions reveal your heart. Now, th this is an important principle for what we're trying to figure out because we're trying to figure out what is the mark of a Christian. If you go to the next slide. So what God tells us, if you allow me to do drawings, <laughs> what Christ tells us in his passage is that you can look at actions and you can determine whether something was good or bad. God's placed the law inside of our heart. It's part of our conscience. We know it, so we can look and judge. But it's not just that the actions are good or bad. It reveals whether the heart is good or bad. Now, the, the danger is, while this is a truth declared by God, uh, Jesus didn't say it was true of only Christians. He said it's true of people. So this is a truth for people. If we stop here, then we're only doing what people do. It, religion becomes a religion of controlling your behavior. On the next slide, if our focus is behavior training ourselves the right thing more often training ourselves to do the right thing more often than the wrong we're no different than those who are without Christ so this model Christ reveals is not the end of the story but it's a good indicator that that's what it is it's a good indicator if you look at people's actions you are seeing what's going on in their heart the problem is it just doesn't say anything about the spirit do you see that there's nothing in there that talks about the spirit of god it only talks about what your heart is and what your actions are. So what I want to show you is just one more principle that God reveals in 2 Samuel before we jump back into Psalm, and it's, it's this one. This is Nathan talking to David after David has confessed his sin. Oh, dear God, I have sinned before you. Nathan pronounces the judgment, and then he offers this. However... Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. What does that mean? God charges David with treason. Do you see that? The sin that David committed is more than just an issue for David. It's an issue for God. God said, David, you decided what you wanted was more important than my name. You decided that you would hand ammunition to the enemy in order that you could have your heart's desire. You decided to trade bullets for bounty. David, your actions are treasonous. To bear the name of the king, 
Remember David? The one that waves the banner high and dances before all of Israel to declare that he is Jehovah's son? That David is the one that committed adultery and murder. To bear the name of the king and to act contrary to his character is to give the enemy ammunition. It's an act of treason. Now, I know this to be true. <laughs> in fact, this exact, this exact event played out in my life. I was at college, sitting at a table, having a discussion with a bunch of other college students about Christian faith. And lo and behold, one of the guys who is not a believer says, You Christians, I can't believe you. You, you take people like David and you put them on a pedestal. He's an adulterer and a murderer. That's the religion you follow. The exact words God declares will happen through Nathan the prophet, you're giving the enemy something bad to say about me, played out right there. And it plays out over and over again. If you go out and start speaking about faith to other people, maybe to your friends, to other students, you will hear them say things like, church is just full of hypocrites. Does that sound familiar? You'll hear them say things like, oh, you people are no different than anybody else. Sound familiar? Or, or maybe somebody that's trying to be a little higher in intellect would say, there have been more wars waged in the name of God than there have ever been waged in any other. You've heard those things. Now, my response to those things tends to be to dismiss them, to act like they don't matter. It doesn't matter that somebody can say that. God says it does matter. It does matter what they say about my name. And if you're giving people the opportunity to profane my name before them, then you are against me. That's harsh. I, I don't know about you, but that's, that's hard to handle. M maybe I'm overstating it. But you know from Revelation that God has a position on this. I believe this ties directly back to what he's saying in 2 Samuel. You know, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. Now, we're enlightened people. We believe in grace, right? If I wake up today and I act just a little bit better than I acted yesterday, surely God would be happy with that. That's not it at all. <laughs> we're, we're missing the point and he's trying to reveal it as he's talking to the church at Laodicea in Revelation he says look uh, the problem with being lukewarm is you give the enemy opportunity to talk bad about me you give him countless chances to proclaim that I am not who I am if you're cold God's happy with you to an extent do you know why? because you can't do anything that profanes his name you have declared you have nothing to do with him. You are not a believer. You don't care about him. And so you can go do your prideful things, and it doesn't say anything about the name of Jesus. In fact, he gets praised because of it, because he demonstrates that he's patient with you. He gives you life, and you can go do your prideful things, and he gets praised for that, because he forbears you and gives you opportunity after opportunity to change your mind. If you're hot with God then you run straight to Jesus Christ and you proclaim His glory and you give Him praise for every opportunity that you have in life and He receives praise and His name is glorified. 
But if you choose to be lukewarm about Jesus Christ, if you choose to walk out knowing that the banner of Christ waves above your head because you've been attending church, because you've been claiming His name, because you profess Him in certain situations, and then you go do something evil, you have just profaned, profaned the flag of Jesus Christ. That's hard. Next slide. If you lightly bear the name of Jesus, you are an arms dealer to the enemy. Think about it. Just imagine conversations people have about Christians. Just imagine them. God must be angry. John, he says he's a Christian, but he's mad at everybody. God must not care about day-to-day -day life. Why do you say that? Joan, she's a Christian. She doesn't mention him at all. God must hate people. Why do you say that? Because Bob, he's always mad at somebody. Do you see where this is going? Now, for me, it's, it's really personal. And, and I'm not saying this to step on your feet. I'm telling you what God's been telling me. Because what I tend to do is I tend to have my Christian community. I tend to have people that I'm in faith with. And I'll get together with you guys, and I'll talk about Jesus all day long. And love it, every minute of it. And then when I vacate from your presence and go somewhere else... I don't mention him because it's dangerous. Because somebody might think I'm not smart. Because I might have to tell people that I did something wrong and not God. And so to do that is to bear his name lightly. The burden's easy. The risk is low. Because I'm not telling anybody what's going on with me. And that's to lightly bear the name of Jesus. And you deal arms to the devil every time you do it. The problem is we now know it's true. So you might be with me. Because as I'm, as I'm trying to digest this, there's thoughts going off in my head. Little warning signs firing everywhere that say, Oh my goodness, this can't be true. Because I'm a sinner. I sin every single day. It happens over and over again. In fact, I might sin before I leave this building. What do we do? God has a solution. He has an answer to that. Because just because you act in sin doesn't mean it has to be treason. David's act was treasonous because he just let it be out there. And he kept waving the flag of God. But God says, I've got a solution. My solution, I will get inside of you. Listen, listen to David, because he's confessed to God. God has declared the consequences to him, and there's nothing he's going to do about the consequences. But for some reason, he still wants to go to God and talk to him. And here's what he says. God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. That's just Psalm 51, 10 through 12. And it's three things that God does for us. Right? If you have a handout and you like to fill in the notes, 
Uh, he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's one. He puts it there. That's his job. It's not your job. You're the dude with a man's heart and a mind. He puts the Holy Spirit inside of you, and that marks a difference between you and somebody else. And then on top of that Holy Spirit, he puts God's heart. That's number two. He gives you a pure heart. It's what you can have if you want it. And then on top of that, it's not enough to have a good heart and to have the Holy Spirit. He gives you a willing spirit, a mind that says, yes, I'm going to do this thing. So this is what God does. He grants us the Holy Spirit. He grants us a pure heart. And he gives us a willing spirit, a mind that will follow through. So you think about the words of God in the Gospels. Uh, Paul talks about it when he talks to the Romans. And he says in Romans chapter 2 that uh, circumcision, as he's talking to the Jews, he says, we're not talking about a circumcision of the flesh. We're talking about a circumcision of the heart. He's going to put a new heart there. And in that heart, he's going to put the joy of salvation. The emotion goes with the desire. I will do those two things for you. So it's not circumcision of the flesh. It's circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. That's Romans 2.29. He says that Holy Spirit there is going to affect your heart. That's its purpose. And so now you have rested inside of you a desire for God's holy name. That's what he's doing. He's giving you a desire for his holy name. If you remember the model that we had of the individual before that, it was a heart and a mind and actions. There was nothing of God's holy name there. But once he puts the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're about his holy name, and he puts a heart inside of you that desires to express his holy name. Once he's done that, he has to give you a willingness to do it. Because it's hard to bear the name of Jesus Christ. It's not easy. He talks about in Philippians. He says, uh, It is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That's that middle block, the mind, the willing spirit. God gives you a Holy Spirit. He gives you a pure heart, and he gives you a willing spirit. Those come from him. If you have them, they're because he saved you. And this is what David is trying to profess. This results in personal revival. Have you ever prayed for revival? Do you ever want it? Do you ever, do you ever look for it? Desire it? Get on your knees and beg God, God, I want revival. I've done it for a while. I'll I just be honest with you. I've, I've been there praying, God, will you bring revival? Will you bring it to us? Will you bring it to me? And do you know what his answer is? He said, let's start working on you first. Let's start working on you. Personal revival. The beginning of Psalm 51 is David's confession. He declares how dirty his heart is. And I'll give you towards the end of Psalm 51 just to summarize it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So David has to present confession to the holy God. And when you confess an act, you change it from an opportunity for treason to an opportunity for praise. David immediately goes from talking about how dirty he is to talking about how great God is. And you can only do that when the Holy Spirit is working inside of you and telling you, hey, that thing you did was wrong. 
and you need to be willing to tell people it was not me. This is what David's doing. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. This is what happens to David. He's renewed. He's excited. And then people around him are affected. Do you see that? So David starts with confession, if you have your handout. He starts with confession. And he goes to teaching. And then he goes to praise. And all that is the result of personal revival. Deep inside, God cut his heart. That sounds painful, but it had to be done. So now you see that there's a man's heart and God's heart there. There are two hearts inside of you, not physically, obviously, but two desires, two value systems. You value to satisfy yourself. David values to satisfy himself. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. But there's another value system that's set right down beside it from God. And it's a value system that says, I desire to praise His name. I desire to make Him known. I desire to do good works and then point to God and say, that came from Him. And then the willing spirit and the Holy Spirit is like a barometer that tells you how close you are. Are you, are you following God or are you not following God? And if you're not following Him, then you need to get on your knees and beg Him to help you follow Him. But the results of those, you still have good and bad actions. That hasn't changed, and that's why looking from the outside, it's so hard to tell whether somebody is a believer or not. Do you know what has to be added to those good and bad actions? Confession and praise. That, that's the mark, confession and praise. And if you don't see it in somebody, you can be assured there's something that's not happening inside their heart. Confession and praise. When I mess up, I confess it. When other people see it, I confess it. And I say, hey, that was me. That was that bad heart inside of me, and I don't care what you think about it. You just need to know that wasn't God's heart. And when you're doing something right, it's praise that comes out of you. That is the heart of God. He put it inside of me. That wasn't of me. That was all of Him. I want you to know that's who God is so that you can come meet Him. Because what happens as a result of that is what David said. He begins to teach transgressors uh, transgressors will learn God's ways and sinners will turn back to God teach transgressors God's ways and sinners will turn back to God that is an awakening because those guys were lost they were dead they were the model with just a heart and just a mind and actions that result they didn't have a spirit that made them alive but as soon as we teach them what that spirit is and they adopt it into themselves they're made alive they are awakened this is the movement of god to start with your personal revival and then your expression of that revival results in a change for the people around you that's an awakening and this is what David's experiencing. Well, you just think for a minute what David is going through. He, he has committed adultery and murder. <clears throat> he has confessed before a holy God. God has decreed what the consequences will be, and he has no way to affect it. Nothing he does is going to change the consequences. Why in the world does David write down a song for all his nation to sing that is about how dirty his heart is? Who does that? 
How often do you sit down and write down a note about how dirty you are and hand it to your children and say, could you read this? We don't do that. There's only one reason somebody would do that, and that's because they care more about the name of God than they care about their own disposition. I, I share a story with you, and uh, ho hopefully I can make it relate. I'm a type 1 diabetic, diagnosed somewhere around three years ago. I have a disease within my body. There's nothing I can do about it. I will have that disease until God decides to heal me here or heal me there. And with that disease, I think about it all the time. I'm thinking about it while I talk to you. What number is my blood sugar right now? <laughs> It's just what you do because there's something inside of you that you have to figure out how to manage. Now, uh, when I was first diagnosed, I would uh, prick my finger. This is what you do. You prick your finger. You get a glucose monitor. You measure your blood sugar. You see what the numbers are. And then I've got an insulin pump. I type in a number to fix what my blood sugar is. Right? This is the routine. But because I can get OCD on some things, I prick my finger six, eight times a day. What's my sugar now? <laughs> what's my sugar now eventually that gets tiresome weary even you, you get tired of it one day somebody introduced me to a continuous glucose monitor it's a device I could kind of attach to my skin it would measure my sugar for me and I could pull my device out and see what the sugar was there were two problems with that, that device the first one it was a car payment every month <laughs> that, that bothers me uh, the second one, I still had to prick my finger. Maybe not eight times a day, but I was, it was telling me to prick my finger somewhere between four and six times a day. So I'm sitting there thinking, what is the point of this? I, I'm still just having to monitor this disease by myself without any help. And then somebody introduced me to a different monitor. It was a tenth the cost. That got my interest. <laughs> and not only was it a tenth the cost, I did not have to check my blood sugar with, with my finger anymore. I just attach it to my arm and use my iPhone to scan it and decide what my blood sugar is. Man, that is a great device. I like this thing. So I was excited about it, and I said, look, just settle down. Use it for about a week or two before you tell anybody so you don't tell them wrong, right? So you don't go tell them something is great, and then two weeks later you find out it's not so great. But I promise you I couldn't get through two days without telling somebody. <laughs> I, I told uh, people at work. I told people in my life group. I told people on planes, I told people in business meetings, I told people in board meetings, I told random people as I was checking out at the grocery store, I just told people. <laughs> Why? Because it affected me. Shoot, one day I told Randy at breakfast. <laughs> now, some of these people, they, they don't care that much because the disease doesn't affect them, right? But they cared because I was telling them, because it was clear that it brought me joy and excitement. And they wanted to hear what mattered in my life. So they endured it. When something affects you, you talk about it. And if you're not talking about it, then it either doesn't affect you or you're ashamed of it. Now that's a principle to apply. Now here's how I want to land it with you. We're asking, what, what's the mark of a Christian? What does a Christian look like? How can you look at people and tell the difference? Or more important, how can they look at you and know what a Christian is? 
a Christian or a believer looks like someone more concerned with how God is perceived than how he is received. A Christian is someone that, like diabetes, knows they have a disease that's within their body. And instead of being ashamed of the disease, they're just proud to know that there's somebody willing to do something about it. God's willing to put a Holy Spirit meter inside of you to measure how you're responding to Him, and they're just proud to say, hey, God's got an answer. Hey, if you're struggling with this, I'd like to tell you how it affects me. That's what a Christian looks like. He's willing to profess, oh, I'm off right now, and that was me. Or, oh, hey, things are going great, and that was God. Or, hey, I'm struggling, but He's giving me patience and endurance. Is this making sense? Is this resonating with you? Let me give you a couple of just practical examples. So a, a Christian is one when God's Holy Spirit tells him, hey, you're doing it right. You're showing grace and love and kindness and generosity. He turns around and professes that that's God. He's a businessman in the middle of a great deal who turns around and chooses to be generous with those people around him, and he tells them, I'm being generous with you because my God is generous, not because I am. He's a student who's struggling in math or science or history. And he keeps trying and keeps struggling. And when his friends ask him, hey, why are you doing that? He's quick to say, I've been given this much ability by a holy God. And he doesn't quit on me, so I'm not going to quit on him. Or when the Holy Spirit tells you, hey, right now you're behaving out of your flesh. You're rude, you're condescending, you're arrogant, you're lying, you're cheating. He's quick to say, hey guys, I want you all to know that was me. That was not my God. So he's a husband who after he discredits his wife in front of his friends, turns to them and says, hey guys, I need to confess something. That was all me. My God is not like that. My God is patient with his bride and loving and kind and sacrificial. And I need to ask you to forgive me for what I just did and I need to go make amends with her. Or he's a lady sitting around a table eating and gossiping with her friends who says, hold on. I need you guys to know something. I just made sport out of her for my own entertainment and my God is not like that. He is patient with my failings and my oddities. I confess that to you, and I want you to know there's a Holy Spirit inside of me that's trying to change the way I think about this and trying to change my heart so I don't do it again. Do you see how this is coming? If you want to show the mark of a Christian to the outside world, you have to be willing to state it. Now, I'm not talking about beating people over the head with your faith. I'm talking about just stating how he's affecting yourself. You, you, nobody's going to get on to you for stating what God's doing inside your soul. He's showing me that I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. He's, he's showing me what it is to be gracious. Did you see that? Because that wasn't me. This is what the mark of a Christian is. So I want to land it here uh, as we're getting ready to go. If you have not allowed God to place that spirit inside of you, if you have not experienced a pure heart that resonates with joy because you're saved and he teaches you how to manage your disease, now's your chance. He, he's offering it to you and he offers it freely. 
He just wants you to say, yes, I have that evil heart inside of me. Sometimes I choose to do good, but more often I choose to do bad, and I want you to fix my disease, God. Because I can tell you, 100% of you, you may not have type 1 diabetes, but 100% of you have the disease of sin. You're not fooling anybody. So if you need God to reconcile that, then this altar's for you. You come and do it. On the other hand, if you're like so many of us, like me, and you've allowed your heart to stray from the heart of the Holy Spirit, uh, you are defaming His name. It's more than just the consequences that you're going to endure. It's the consequences that His name is enduring, and you need to confess it, not just to Him, but to the people that see it. So this altar is for you. You come beg Him to restore your pure heart. You beg Him to give you clean hands and you enjoy the moment when you rise from it and know His Holy Spirit's at work. So this is your chance. As Kevin and the musicians come to sing, I'm going to pray for us. And then the invitation will be given. Uh, as, as, we're, as you're invited, you decide what you do with God's invitation. Dear Holy Father, I confess to you that I have an evil heart and I praise your name that you put a pure one inside of me. I beg you to put the Holy Spirit down so deep inside of me that I resonate with it, God. Give me a willing spirit that cries out to praise your name, that clarifies any time my actions don't reconcile with you, I claim them. God, I confess to you this spirit inside of me, and I beg for the people here, if you've cut their heart, that they respond to you and don't wait. Please don't let them take the opportunity to defame your name, but bring praise to you. God, all these things we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.